This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics. Hi, I'm Matthew Butler. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Lisa Casey. We're joined on this episode of Lexis by two guests. So we have Freya Raymond Layfield, who's the Content Inclusivity Manager at OED, and Fiona McPherson, who's a senior editor at the OED. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. So because you work for the OED, we're going to start with a, a very basic question. <laughs> what are dictionaries for? What's their function in the modern world? What do they do? And is there maybe a difference between, you know, what dictionaries actually do, i.e. what you do, and how the general public perceives their function? Right. Well, I guess I should take this one as a dictionary yeah. editor here. <laughs> um, I, I think, put very simply, the, the aim of any dictionary is to unpack the meaning of a word um, that's unfamiliar enough to somebody that they needed to look it up. Um, and I think that even in the modern world, people sort of still appreciate that. They maybe just want to check that they've got the right idea about what something means. Or, you know, sometimes people use it to check spelling as well. But mostly, it's you know, they just want to find out whether or not something means what they think it means. But I do think that realistically, there's a difference between how the general public actually perceive the function and, mm. and certainly what we think we do. I think for many people, dictionaries are kind of, they, they bestow an official status. You know, it's not a real word unless it's in the dictionary. How, how, mm. how can, you know, well, I can't find it in the dictionary, so, so it can't be real. But that's not really the case. Dictionaries are just describing the words that are in use by the people speaking the language. So it's not going to be in a dictionary unless people have been using it. So it's, that put simply, it's not a real word because it's in the dictionary. It's just, it's been used by enough people that mm. it's in the dictionary. Um, with the dictionary of current English, the focus obviously is going to be on current vocabulary and current meanings. The OED is a bit different, and then I can say more about this if you want me to, but it, mm. it's a historical dictionary. So it's aiming to tell the story of a word from the time that it entered the language through any development in meanings that there have been. Some words will be obsolete, some senses will be obsolete, and that's, you know, that, that's what it's doing. But yeah, I think there is definitely a difference between what people think a dictionary is doing and what we as editors think we're doing as well yeah and do you think people think of the OED as the dictionary I know you're probably going to say yes aren't you because <laughs> you yeah I think probably yeah. although what they think of as the OED might not actually be mm. the OED yeah. and that's another thing mm. that you know you often find the OED is is there's only ever been two print editions of it and we're currently working on the third mm. and the second edition had 20 volumes so sometimes I mean this is fine but you know sometimes when people say oh yeah I've got the OED on my shelf they might and people do but sometimes it's not actually the OED it's what it's our dictionary of current English instead right. but you know that's okay too <laughs> So who who actually decides what a word means when it comes to the Oxford English Dictionary? Uh, well, the people who use the language, obviously, but I think what you're probably thinking of is, yeah, it's people like me, my colleagues uh, and I working as editors. Um, we're the ones who codify it. So we're the ones who actually try to put it into words you know, so that somebody can look it up. But we can only get the meaning from the way that people are using it. So and that's from the surrounding context. Because sometimes we'll work on words that, you know, are familiar and we think, oh, yeah, I think I know what that means. Mm. But then when we do our research, we find it's not quite exactly as we thought it was. But sometimes we will work on words that aren't that familiar to us. So it's the surrounding context that tells us. But yeah, we're the ones who 
choose the words to go into the definition, but only based on on what the general public say a word means. And what about if there's some sort of dispute about what a word might mean from its kind of use? Yeah, I mean, those are things that we have to bear in mind and we have to to mention where that's relevant. We wait until these sorts of things are a bit more settled before Mm. I was going to say weighing in, but that kind of goes against what I've been saying about us, you know, describing the language rather than prescribing. But yeah, it's it's about whether a word has reached a kind of general consensus of meaning by the people who would be using it. And I say that because with, with ordinary words, mm. that's, the, that's the general public. With technical words, you know, I'm not a biochemist, for example, mm. so I'm not going to be familiar with a lot of biochemistry words. Mm. But are these terms that would be used by biochemists? Yes. Right. So so it, it's, it's about that. But, yeah, we obviously, if there's contention or anything like that you know we, we will we will where we're appropriate and we're relevant uh mention that and, and address yeah that. and so with it with the sort of difference between the different oxford dictionaries you know so for example oxford dictionaries online mm-hmm. versus the oed is there a kind of there's a different way in which you update those and you sort of alluded yeah. to the fact the oed's only really had two editions so far yeah but yeah. you know oxford online is constantly updated isn't it well ish sort of right okay <laughs> um, <laughs> the oed so yeah we're working towards we're working on the third edition mm. but it's available online subscription model but it's, it's right. available online and that's updated four times a year and within that update we will have brand new words words that haven't been in the dictionary before i always have to say that as well because a new word isn't necessarily yeah. brand new it's just not been in the oed before a new senses of existing words you know development and meanings mm. but there's also a large chunk of revised text so taken the um, the text already existed, updated it with scholarship, with you know, with new quotations, um, right. sometimes earlier examples, that kind of thing. So that happens four times a year. The, the free online dictionary of current English, which um, you can get on Lexico and, as you say, Oxford dictionaries online, and it's the Google sort of one box definition. Yeah. That's actually updated twice a year, and that's with new vocabulary, some revisions and some updates. And yeah, the main the main difference there is is obviously scope. The OED being historical dictionary will include a lot of words which are obsolete, rare, unusual, and puts them in chronological order. So you've got the oldest ones first. Yeah. So mm. sometimes the most modern meaning will not be what you would see first. A current English dictionary like the Oxford one, it will give you the current meanings first. And probably won't include that many old-fashioned mm. or obsolete words, unless they're ones which are likely to come across, say, in, in literature or yeah. uh, legal terms, that kind of thing. Okay. So, right. Can I ask thing. a quick follow-up question about that? For kind of sure. newer terms or newer words, is there a sort of a numeric threshold of kind of usage <laughs> that they have to <laughs> hit to sort of get, you know, how do you, how do you determine sort of general use yeah. or general consensus? There's a, there is, but it's not hard and fast number. So we used to say that, and this, and this still holds true, but it's only a rule of thumb. We normally don't include a new word in the OED until we've had about five years worth of evidence for it. That doesn't okay. mean that it can't go in before then. Mm. Um, but that normally means a word has stuck around, established a meaning, yeah. really entered into the populace, if you like. Mm. Uh, a quick example of one that didn't have to wait that long was COVID-19. 
which mm-hmm. we actually added oh, I think about two months after it first came right. into language but yeah. I mean I don't think anyone would argue with that but no there's not a number it's not like right if we can have 5,000 examples the word goes in if there's 4,999 sorry you've not made it it's it's more about general rules of thumb are you seeing it in biggish numbers in the types of places where you'd expect to and and then once we've established that we take it from there. Right. So Freya, can you tell us a bit more about the role of the content inclusivity manager? That, that's the, the post you've just taken up, isn't it? What's, what does that involve? What do you hope to achieve with that sort of in general terms? OK, well, my background originally, I'm not a lexicographer, so I'm not an editorial, but my background is English language teaching and writing. And I'm, current, I'm from New Zealand originally. Um, but I've lived in different countries teaching English and recently completed my MA in education um, and then went to apply for this job at OUP. So in my role, I'll be working across all dictionaries, so not just the OED, but the current dictionaries, Hmm. bilingual dictionaries as well, to make sure that diverse voices are authentically represented and included in our content. That's kind of my aim. Um, The idea being, of course, that English is a global language, It's spoken as a first language from the Caribbean to Singapore, from New Zealand, Nigeria, you know, it's it's international. And it's spoken by people of different ages and backgrounds and heritage. So my job is to make sure that these voices and perspectives are included. And is is there a kind of link between that and say that, you know, the the new language variety stuff that the OED has been publishing, you know, so the kind of examples there, you know, world Englishes. Yeah, yeah, world Englishes is exactly what um, we've we've got an executive editor who's in charge of that specifically. So I work closely with her and, and she's been doing wonderful work, which I think is only... Uh, the OED is quite unique in having that perspective. So that's part of it, but it's also looking at the content that we have and making sure that that's also representative within, so it's not separate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The OED obviously feels like this is a role that's needed. In a in a recent blog about the role of content inclusivity manager, it said mm. um, upcoming revision work will focus on the representation of women, people of colour and the LGBTQ plus community and those with disabilities, among others. So what what are the particular problems that have been identified then about representation of these particular groups and can you maybe give us a couple of examples of terms or definitions that the OED or people connected to it feel need changing because there's some kind of sensitivity around it that's at play there? Yeah absolutely as as we mentioned so the OED is historical so the senses of the words are arranged in chronological order which means that there's quite a lot of colonial era examples or quotations which are written by mostly European and American men of that time. Mm. Um, So we need to represent people of diverse heritage and background that also wrote and created language Mm. from that time as well, because they do exist and and did exist and will exist and across all Englishes as well. So, but Mm. also maintaining sort of the lexicographical uh, you know, bar that OUP and, and dictionary set. So a specific example of this actually that we've recently changed is our spelling guidance for black and our American English dictionary edition as the capitalization of B is now more commonly used in the USA to describe people of African-American heritage. And this change follows Black Lives Matter protests. And this capitalization represents black as a culture, not just as a color. So it's more representative of the black community, which is very important. So 
that's a that's a specific thing that we looked at, looked at use, found evidence, and and made that change. So language is is constantly changing, and there's always more that we can do, and that's sort of what we have to keep our focus on. And it's is it kind of largely about kind of going back to older definitions and looking at what might be kind of problematic about some of the ways in which they're defined? Is, is, that, a, is that a significant strand yeah. to it? There's definitely, it's looking at definitions, there's language and definitions, there's looking at, in the OED, they have quotations mm. from different periods. So it's looking at making sure that they're not all written by one sector of society. Yeah. Um, and and making sure that others are represented because then you get a wider context you know mm. it's not it's not a narrow context and that's really important and we we look across lots of different databases and old newspapers you know right. historic and it's sort of finding all of those amazing resources and and getting that out that information out of it's really important so mm. that's part of what I also have to look into is, is looking for more resources as well right. the idea of sources is, is a really interesting one because so to start off with with OED because we are a historical dictionary we're bound to give the full story obviously Mm. and sometimes you know as Freya alluded to sometimes the early stories of some words I mean not every word by any means but sometimes Mm. you know they're caught up with other things Mm. and and we always have to give the first example of um, a mean of of a sense of a word or or a word itself that we can find and sometimes you know we're absolutely we're sort of bound by that and what's been amazing even in in the time that I've worked on the OED is the explosion in sources that you now have things Mm. that things that obviously existed decades ago but we just didn't have the ability unless we happen to be the owner of it or living Mm. in the town where it's published or somebody told us about it now you know at the click of a mouse I can access a I don't know a regional newspaper in Nigeria or a magazine that's only published in Singapore and so reflective of Singaporean English say Mm. that kind of thing these might have existed but it's only recently that we've been able to access them you know sitting in Oxford or sitting wherever wherever it might be Mm. and and so that's really revolutionized the way that we're we're able to now reflect language so it's not that the examples before weren't authentic but sometimes because of the sources that we had we were sort of we could only get our hands on it would be maybe I don't know descriptions of things in other countries or Mm. these are the words that people here use whereas now it's easier it's you know to get the actual voice of the person yes, using yeah the no that's really interesting I mean I think it's there's, a, there's an argument that you you often see kind of rolled out by people saying well increased diversity means you're going to have to lower the bar somehow because it means you'd be taking you know sources that you wouldn't previously have treated as serious but of course you know as you just illustrated it, they, those sources were always there just didn't have access mm-hmm. to all the kind of you know the, the, the know-how to kind of get hold of those and yeah. you actually, it's a much more accurate and, you know, full yeah. reflection, isn't it, of language? Yeah. And that's what we want to do. No. <laughs> that's what we're interested no. in, you know. Yeah. And, and it's interesting what you say about uh, a serious source, because, yeah, that, that that's true. And that gets down to the idea of, you know, is it so just to pick an example that's not especially diverse or um, inclusive, mm. but is a tabloid newspaper not a serious source? Would it yeah, have to yeah. 
a broadsheet it, it's a continuation of that mm. yeah absolutely and what's really great about um, working with Freya is you know as she said she's not she's not coming from a lexicographical background she's not no. and she's not coming as an editor but it's really great to have an ex I was going to say an external voice but she's not external because she's working with us <laughs> yeah but, you know Somebody coming mm. at it from a, from a from a slightly different angle, because although this is work that we've been attempting to do, you can always do it better and you can mm. always find other ways and other avenues to it. So it's, it's really useful for us to, to have that to have that resource. I'm calling you res- resource now, Freya. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I like it. So if just... we can if we can play devil's advocate for just a second, then mm-hmm. what what would you say to somebody who argues that it's not the dictionary's job to kind of adjudicate on ideas of offensiveness? Mm-hmm. It's not something that a dictionary should concern itself about uh, because it's it's just words and you know the way they're used are outside of the dictionary's control or they don't really hurt anybody or or, or anything like that. How how would you respond to to sort of that argument? I would say that words absolutely matter, that words are incredibly important and the words that we choose to use, they convey our standpoint, our emotions, our objections, they express love and humour and they display our character and our personality. So I think they're incredibly important and that's why our dictionaries must also give as much information as they can on what words and the different senses mean so that people, that our readers Uh, accurately informed I think it's incredibly important Mm. yeah uh, that's definitely the case and you said adjudicate um I I don't think it is a dictionary's job to adjudicate but that's not I think what we're trying to do but if we we will label a word as offensive if it's offensive and the reason we know it's offensive is from reading how people are using it and people's Mm. reactions to it etc etc so we're not saying we're not saying we have decided this word is offensive. We're also not saying you mustn't use this word. As Freya has said, it's about giving it's about giving as much information, as much accurate information as possible so that people will read this, understand then that if they do use this word, other people are going to find it offensive, perhaps. But the information's there. So we're, we're, we're mm-hmm. describing, giving guidance, but not adjudicating, I would say. And just sort of following on from that, I suppose when, when you kind of, you know, look at maybe over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's lots of kind of British institutions, you know, that have been queried, they've been challenged over their sort of institutional sexism, racism, homophobia, for example. Is there some sort of acknowledgement maybe that as an as a old English institution, the OED itself is perhaps kind of guilty of those things and that, you know, by having a content inclusivity manager, that's a sort of acknowledgement that these things need to be challenged and overhauled too. Or is that is that pushing it too far? Yeah, I think I think I think that is pushing it. I think I wouldn't say that they are systemically racist or misogynistic or homophobic. And I think as well, I think there's just there's been a movement over across society that that many institutions need to address past practices mm. and content. And I think diversity and inclusion projects and roles are being implemented in industries from steel production to publishing. You know, it's it's a it's a sort of a societal movement, which is brilliant. But we also, as we mentioned, we've also we also have an executive editor who's in charge of World Englishes. So that language from the Caribbean, African American English, Australian English are all in, included. And this is unique to mm. the OED. She's been there for a long, you know, a long time. 
and at OED and across uh, other dictionaries, global languages, we do bilingual dictionaries, we do dictionaries in, as I said, African-American English. It's, it's incredibly unique to the OED. And now we've also got international departments um, with OUP from South Africa and uh, across to India. And as people have been doing different sensitivity projects in those areas and across dictionaries, so my role is sort of to come in and make sure that those are all interconnected, that each one knows what, what's going on and, and that if something is discovered within Indian OUP, that they say we've brought this up and they'll let us know and so that, so that we can work together and, and make sure it's across the board. And that's kind of that's at the heart as well of, of what I have to do. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, I think that's a really good point. And one that, yes, we've got our editor who's, who's working in global languages, but part of what she's doing as well is establishing partnerships in those parts of the world where English is spoken. So again, mm. it's not us saying, this is what this part of the world says, and we're telling you about this. Sorry. It's mm-hmm. about working with people, you know, and, and partnering with them. And exactly, sometimes we, although, you know, we like to I like to think of myself as a bit of a language expert. I, I, you, do, you don't always have that innate sense of how things work in your own variety as, as, you know, from other bits. So it's absolutely vital that, you know, we just look at it and just make sure that we are doing, you know, the right thing. This might sort of take us back to something from earlier on, just about the sources. And maybe it sort of links to this last point as well. You know, talking about sort of the, the, the wealth of, sources that you can cite from is there is is there maybe a case that historically some varieties of English were just not recorded because of sort of assumptions about their quality or their lack of kind of reaching a certain certain standard you know the kind of standard language ideology that we we, we often see where you know non-standard varieties around the world might be judged as inadequate or as broken English or something so those sources never you know those examples never really made it into dictionaries because they weren't seen as being of an acceptable quality but now there's more of a sense that you can include those because of a, a changing sort of attitude towards a, a more progressive attitude for example towards language that non-standard varieties have as much value as, as standard forms is there something to be said for that in, in what's happening as well? I would say so. I don't know if you wanted to say something first, Freya. I don't no, want I to. Just... Say, I think I think we have I think that's part of it too. I think I think a lot of work has been done on that though as well, hasn't there? I mean, looking at the dictionaries and thinking of Maori words, for example, that have come into New Zealand English, they've been included in there for a long time, or, or colloquialisms mm. that I might use. In, in New Zealand have been in the dictionary for a while. I don't know exactly from when. There may have been a snobbery about that many, many, I don't know, like, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> 60 years ago. But I think, and we, you know, we we do use, we encourage sourcing from Twitter, from right. the internet, from wherever, because it could because the language exists everywhere. And we have to make sure that that is all, you know, no one source is, is better. Right. Than yeah. I think I think that's true and I think that I think there is there is a tendency if you even think about it in the type, types of language that you might use when you're sitting at home or talking amongst your friends and then ones you might use when for example you're I don't know recording a podcast or <laughs> doing a talk or something you you know but yeah slang more colloquial words which were probably deemed not standard English I mean even just from within British English itself, if you just mm-hmm. want to take that. Of course, they exist as well. But a dictionary's job is describing the language as it's used 
in all of its glory. I think probably people like like me or Freya have probably always thought that, but maybe not everybody has. But I think there is a there's a definite, I think, view now to the fact that language isn't just the mm-hmm. formal discourse that's spoken in academic type places it's it sounds a bit trite to say but it belongs to the people whoever is speaking it and whatever they're saying so this this kind of links to what we've been talking about already which is we there's a lot of kind of discourse in the news these days often in sort of pejorative terms about about wokeness or cancel culture um do you feel that this process might need to be defended this process that the OED is going through at the minute do you feel like this is a process that maybe needs defense against accusations that the OED is caving in to sort of the woke left or or is somehow cancelling an original version of itself and have have the OED had discussion or or considered how this might be reported by sort of anti-woke campaigners in in some of the press well there's a lot in there gone for you (laughs) (laughs) it's one of my long questions (laughs) I mean you know we've thought about it a little bit I think I would say that the, the the beauty of inclusive practices is that they represent more not less and that's always it's not about cancelling anyone or anything it's actually about expanding and representing more so we are simply including language and examples from a much wider pool um as we've said because that's where english is written and spoken and we're not equally not telling anyone what to say or write we're simply giving them the accurate description of our very global language and then they may choose to do with that what they will, that's fine. You know, that's it. Dictionaries are a reflection of society, um, not a rule book. And so it's right that equally all of society is seen and represented and respected, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing's been censored. I mean, we're really continuing, you know, part of the the job of revising the OED is is to update the language. And this is just a part of that yeah um, we're not we're not removing words that we think people shouldn't use or anything like that as Freya said it, it's not about that and language belongs to everybody so we are continuing to make sure that that happens in in, in the in the the most accurate best ways that we can and yeah it's as I said that these sources we've now We've got more access to them. So why wouldn't we want to use yeah. sources mm-hmm. which show typical use? And that's that's what it always comes down to. We, as, as lexicography, we want to help. <laughs> so the words that we want to give examples of, we want the best examples that we can get from them. So yeah. why wouldn't you want to w- widen the pool of examples available to you? We're just we're just carrying on and not telling people what to do, what not to do, but just giving them all the information. And it's mm-hmm. as simple as it's yeah. as simple as that, she says, but yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is right, why it requires 20 volumes. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, and counting, I think I would say now, but yeah. How many is it going to be for the third, do you think? Oh, well, I mean, at the moment, obviously, we're, we're publishing online, so that's yeah. you, you're never going to run out of space. It used to mm. be, but this was a few years ago now, that if we carry on at the extent that, that we're doing, it would, go, it would at least double in size. Right. Huge. <laughs> Quite yeah, frankly, yeah. so there's a lot of words in the language, 
Um, yeah. And we're really impatient and we want to kind of get them all in there as, as soon as we can as well. So that's lovely. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about yes. it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having us. This Lang in the News, we're going to be talking about a range of different things. We're just going to have one quick thing to start with, which is a link to what we've just been talking about with the OED team. Um, and then we're going to be thinking a little bit more about some ideas for possible language investigations. We'll start by having a look at one particularly extreme example of a response to uh, changing meanings in the dictionary. And this was picked up in a couple of sources um, towards the end of April where a man in the US has been arrested for threatening to bomb the Merriam-Webster dictionary over its apparently trans-inclusive definitions. And this was picked up on ABC News, but also in on the Pink News website. And the story was that a, a guy threatened to hunt down and shoot workers of the oldest dictionary in the US, prosecutors claimed. He sent online threats to the company over their entries for words such as girl and woman. And it kind of shows a particular strand of prescriptivism that really goes a little bit further than your average kind of newspaper commentator. Yeah, you into, could say that. Into um, a pretty extreme reaction where um, somebody feels that their entire uh, worldview, their entire identity is coming under threat from broadening and making more inclusive definitions in the dictionary. It's clearly part of a kind of wider agenda around a lot of these things. You know, as, as we often say, these things that seem to be about language on the surface are probably more to do with other things like politics, social change and the rest of it. But this does seem to be a particularly kind of egregious example of it. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think that thought... was quite clear, wasn't it? When uh, in, in part of the threats, he was referring to the, the woke left. Um, so as you say, and, it's like... And un... communists, I think he yeah. talks about, or commies at one point. Commies, they're always there. Hi. Yeah, so, <laughs> so there's, there's an assumption that, that those who are in charge of changing dictionaries are in some way kind of politically aligned with mm. the left. When we've talked to lexicographers, they're very clear that they kind of they reflect language change rather than prescribe language change. But that doesn't seem to be a message that is kind of particularly well understood by by the well, maybe by the average public, but certainly by by this guy. But. Part of the reason that we liked this story as well is we're, we're coming into the season where students, teachers are starting to think about linguistic investigations or longer scale projects. Uh, this was a particularly nice one because it lends itself to thinking about different ways you can carry out investigations. And, and the rest of this segment, we're going to have a look at a couple of different examples. Uh, here, you could decide that you wanted to use this story as a starting point for looking at attitudes to language change. Or, of course, you could go off in another direction and decide to have a look at discourses around language change and particularly semantic change may be connected to keywords. We know that gendered words are kind of a hot topic at the minute, but it could yeah. be any type of word that is undergoing a current semantic change that students decide that they want to have a look at. But there are lots of stories in the news that lend themselves really nicely to starting points for students to have a look at investigation. So we're going to have a look at a couple more of those now. And I mean, a, a few sort of suggestions around this are to look at sort of newspaper and online coverage of things around 
around politics. So one of the one of the recent ones is on Angela Rayner of the Labour Party. And there's been some stories about the, the way in which she's been reported on and covered in the media. And The Guardian ran an article entitled From Lexit to Calm Down, Dear. Six times UK MPs have faced sexism. And that's an interesting resource for students to draw on because it's it's got some sort of historical examples of how female politicians have been represented and described in the media, including one that I think many students will have seen because it's appeared in a couple of the kind of textbooks for this, but around Nicola Sturgeon and Theresa May and how uh, they were covered as forget about Brexit, what about Lexit, which basically just kind of foregrounded the fact they were female politicians who may I remember the legs. pictures. I remember I do, the yeah. pictures mm-hmm. from that one. It was really stark, actually. Yeah. yeah. And that sort of fixation on uh, female politicians' bodies, which you wouldn't necessarily get with, you'd rarely get with male politicians. Discussion about uh, cleavage and about uh, the Daily Mail weighing in with a story uh, called The Great Cleavage Divide, which talked about different bras that female politicians might be wearing, which sounds kind of prurient and rather creepy. And then one that goes back a little bit further. So this this may well be, for many students who are doing this, you're going to be 16, 17, 18 years old. You may not remember David Cameron, but David Cameron was the Prime Minister from 2010 to was it 2016 after the, directly as he disappeared whistling after the Brexit referendum <laughs> he was um he was criticized when during PMQs one year he told the shadow treasury treasury secretary Angela Eagle to calm down dear and there was a lot of discussion around that so there's some really good examples in there I mean really bad examples of sexism and uh, stereotypical behaviour and language directed at female politicians, but would make for a re- really good investigation to look at the ways in which there's a kind of disparity and asymmetry in this kind of thing. And you may find it's a really good investigation to carry out if you wanted to look at it over time or in different newspapers, different sources, or even just to kind of focus on whether it's, it happens to politicians of a different kind of political stripe. There's a really nice book uh, that came out a couple of years ago by Deborah Cameron out of Oxford and Susan Shaw. Sylvia Shaw. Sylvia Shaw, mm. that specifically looked at the reporting around one of the elections. But they essentially analysed reporting on a national election and the run up to it and the ways that female and male politicians were uh, represented in the press. It's a really, really interesting read, not least because essentially they concluded female politicians were generally presented in more positive lights, but that those positive uh, features that were reported on, i.e. communicative capacity, empathy and sympathy actually underscored really stereotypical ideas about mm. women. Uh, and even more interestingly, that weren't reflected in the way language was actually used in the televised debates that Nicola Sturgeon interrupted and was as obstructive and, you know, bullish as mm. the male counterparts, but it was mm-hmm. not reported that way in the press. So there's some really nice theoretical things you can draw on there if you're looking for a theoretical basis to kind of um give your investigation some clout clout yeah. <clears throat> exactly and i think when when we were talking kind of just a, a little bit ago um prior to recording you were saying lisa how with uh, your students you quite often get them to start with a piece of research um as a kind of jumping off point and then you know kind of like measure against measure their findings against what other linguists have found in the past and I think that's a, a really strong way to go about organizing a, a, a piece of investigation. 
Yeah, it's certainly an option for some, especially those who find that they're kind of wallowing around in their own opinions and not really mm. having anything to hang it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it's quite nice because you can frame it as a, you know, I'm adding to this particular mm. theory or mm-hmm. I'm, you know, disputing an element of this theory or I'm looking to clarify an aspect of this, mm. this theory. That can be quite a nice way to, to frame it for some students. Another story I think that's that's cropped up really recently is the coverage in the US of the, well, the leaking of the Supreme Court's decision, but also the, the decision itself to supposedly overturn the momentous Roe v. Wade ruling. And I think, Lucy, you had a couple of things you wanted to say about yeah, this. Yeah, this was, this again is ripe for investigation from students uh, for them to have a look at in a bit more detail. There seems to be a sort of a political split in the way that this event is being reported with news outlets and publications on the right of US of US politics reporting on the problem being that the leak has happened and that mm. this is a massive issue constitutionally uh, and for the legitimacy of the Supreme Court but on the left the reporting is about the threat to women's abortion rights um, yeah. and that the very same thing is being reported on in very very different ways depending on the political leanings of the the news outlets and again that's something that that that's lovely and quite straightforward for students to analyse if they choose to. Yeah, although sometimes the kind of actual political leanings are a bit harder to unpick, aren't they? Because it's, Mm. I mean, as we've probably talked about before in a few of these, when we've looked at newspaper coverage in the UK, often sort of issues of right and left aren't quite as clear as they used to be. And it's not necessarily that there is very much a left-wing press in either of the countries in, in the no, first place. I think, I think there is, I think there's greater polarity in the US yeah. perhaps than mm. in the UK. But again, that may be, that may be the way that I'm getting my news about the US as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, you know, through the outlets that I choose to have a look at. So yeah, definitely worth a look. Yeah, and certainly worth kind of challenging your own sort of perspectives of it as well by mm-hmm. having a look at different sources. And I think that ties into another story around various gate scandals that we've had in the UK. So we're all aware of Partygate, which has been rolling on uncontrollably. Endlessly, <laughs> for yeah. months and months, it seems. Yeah, and, and, and Beergate, which is the more recent, some would say confection, others would say kind of attempt to redress the balance, where the allegation is that Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, had some kind of beer and curry party during campaigning at a different time of one of the lockdowns, I think. And certainly mm. there is I think a there's literally split. a leaked a leaked photograph this morning that we're, that we're recording. Yeah. So it's very much, again, a political split there where right wing conservative party supporting newspapers, which, of course, is the majority in the UK, are, you know, the Mail, the Express, the Sun particularly have led on this. And, you know, the way in which that's been covered is, is really interesting, again, to have a look at the, the ways in which those politicians have been represented, what their actions are supposed to kind of symbolise and to have a look at the ways in which, you know, has there been a kind of balance in the language used to describe both the scale and the nature of these events might we want to kind of investigate a bit more about some of the the different agendas at work here Um, if you even if you wanted to go really sort of micro level and have a look at suffixes like we talked in a previous episode about gate as mm. a really interesting suffix that was kind of undergoing this renaissance of being attached to lots and lots of stories uh, to make it into a thing Uh, you may Mm -hmm. decide that you want to look at it morphologically speaking and that could be that could be interesting 
Okay, and then a final idea that we thought might be interesting is just on the back of recent coverage of the Ukraine war, and in particular kind of representations of asylum seekers and, and refugees. We wondered whether it'd be useful to maybe have a look at people like Baker and McHenry, who have, have done a, a, a corpus-based approach piece of work, considering the representation of um, refugees and asylum seekers as a starting point, maybe, and then potentially comparing the coverage of the Ukraine war and and the kind of refugees from that war with perhaps another war such as um, the Syrian war and the refugee crisis um, that that, uh, followed that, just in terms of, um, you know, looking at different representations of different groups of people. And that might link quite nicely to our, I think it was our previous episode, where we had a, a lovely interview with Cameron Khan. We, we had some discussion around exactly that idea. So two potential starting points there. Mm, and the good thing about something like the Ukraine crisis, I mean, if you can ever call it a good thing, is that is that coverage about any major world event will will be, again, have so many different options for students mm. to consider, you know, whatever piques their interest. If they're mm-hmm. interested in looking at representations of political parties, they can mm. do that. If they're looking at politicians, they can do that. If they're looking at, you know, the great British public and their response to the, you know, the Ukraine crisis, they can do that. Like literally anything that, that they want or that or that has interest for them um, is there as long as they as long as they frame it carefully yeah. and, they, and that they know what they're looking at. And that's generally what what creates a, a better investigation, isn't it? If we, if you kind of narrow the focus, so rather than thinking about representation of the Ukraine war, if you can narrow the focus mm. down a little bit, we get we get more kind of um, precise findings and more interesting findings usually. Yeah, I think it's also that it's, it's interesting to have a sort of historical dimension to a lot of this, and um, I think their their corpus data was from two thousand and five. You could look at more recent stuff, as Jackie was just saying about Syria and Ukraine. But also you could go back even further and there's been loads of digitised newspapers now that I think the British Library is, has had mm. a massive kind of, um, yeah, mass, massive amount of digitised data there now where you could look at representation of migration going back to around, for example, the 1930s with Jews fleeing kind of mainland Europe and the coverage in certain mm. newspapers in the UK, which was very, very negative. And then you might have a look at, you know, um, representation of, of migration around the turn of the 20th century. You can have a look at kind of particular moments in kind of UK history as well. So, you know, for example, the 1970s and the Vietnamese boat people, for example, mm. how how these kind of crises, if they are crises, are represented. And, you know, there, there's plenty there to have a look at and, and think about that sort of historical dimension to it. And then one sort of final thing just to finish off with is just a quick link to um, a couple of other stories which aren't connected to representation or investigations but just tie into um, stories about accent so just a few quick things we've got one which is a story from the guardian called i want a voice that fits me which is about a teenager with cerebral palsy who lives in walsall who has uh uses a communication aid basically a kind of computer that produces a voice for him but the voice sounds nothing like the people around him who have you know, a local Walsall accent, and he wants a voice that more accurately represents his own sense of identity. So he's currently, I think, auditioning various people to do do a voice that suits his identity. Mm-hmm. And that whole idea of like accent and identity is often sort of portrayed from quite a kind of negative view, isn't it, about people's sort of bad feelings about um, mm. other accents. But we, mm. we sometimes forget that sort of importance of 
like pride and a sense of kind of familiarity with your own your own sort of locality and family and a sense of belonging Mm. And that merges uh, really nicely with, yes. with the story with the story that came out a couple of weeks ago about Killian Murphy, um, fairly well-renowned Irish actor who has apparently moved back to Ireland after his children developed quote very posh English accents. <laughs> the worst um, kind of accent for an Irishman, <laughs> proud Irishman to have the oppressor's voice. <laughs> Uh, this this is great because it because it merges together all sorts of different things that we talk about. It's it's, it's about accent and dialect. It's about attitudes to accent and dialect. It's about discourses around the English and the Irish, yeah, um, or the English and and any of the oppressed nations that sit around <laughs> all over the world, yeah. <laughs>